Well, in the 1850s, Jeremy Cutler moved to an island, an island that was disputed between British and American control. The island is what is currently between Washington State and Canada, kind of in the Vancouver area. And on June 15th, this Jeremy Cutler found a pig eating the potatoes on his land. So upset that this was happening, he shot the pig and killed it. Well, it was owned by a gentleman named Charles Griffin, an Irishman who worked for the British Hudson Bay Company, who was British, and Jeremy was an American. Well, Cutler offered $10 for the pig, and Griffin demanded $100. And Cutler said, that's crazy. It was eating my potatoes. And Griffin replied, it is up to you to keep your potatoes out of my pig. Well, Griffin got the British authorities involved, and Cutler got the American military involved. And before you knew it, 500 American soldiers were on the small island, and five British warships with 2,000 men were ready to invade the small island. One American commander in his bluster said, we'll make a bunker hill out of this. Well, thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, although it took 12 years of joint military encampment of the island to settle the the matter. And thankfully, another British-American war did not break out over a pig. Crazy. Two nations almost going to war over a pig. Could it be that murder, war, divisions happen over smaller things than just that. About things going on in our hearts. Personal hurts, slights, preconceived notions of people. How do we address these issues before they metastasize, before they just grow bigger and bigger, before we end up just ghosting someone? or giving someone the long-term silent treatment, or maybe entrenched hatred to someone, or then family standoffs, or then lawsuits, or then fights, or then murder, or then even war. How do we deal with these things warring within us that cause division? Let's look, shall we? Matthew chapter 25 I'm going to read verses 21 through 26, and then I'll go through the other verses as we go on in the sermon. Please pay attention as we look at God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, 
you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Well, welcome. If you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Matthew. This is one of the four Gospels. If you don't know what a Gospel is, Gospel means the good news. It's really the story of Jesus and uh, really telling about his life and his ministry. We've been looking specifically at three chapters in the book of Matthew. And uh, these three chapters uh, put together what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which many have argued is the greatest sermon ever told. One Christian academic, C.S. Lewis, was asked in a letter by a friend, really the friend accused him of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. Lewis responded to his friend saying this, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And that is what's happened to us. We've been dealt eight humbling blows in the Beatitudes about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the peacemakers. After those blows, we've been told we need to be salt and light, that we need to be spreading the message, that we need to be a preservative. And we were convicted on that. And then last week, We saw that Jesus says that our righteousness needs to exceed the most righteous people of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees. And now he gets into this. Six stringent illustrations of what righteousness should look like, specifically in our interactions with others. Maybe a sledgehammer is exactly what we need to stake us into the ground, to put up a kingdom that looks different than the world around us. How do we overcome a world that's answered the problems around them with conflict, relational discord, division? Jesus is offering a different way. Maybe you're burdened this morning. You're burdened by how our nation looks right now. Maybe it's more personal than that. You're burdened by the wake of the broken relationships that you have left in your life. Maybe this morning, you need the ointment of the gospel. I'll tell you, the ointment of the gospel, it stings at first. But if you allow the medicine to do its work, it can bring incredible healing and peace into your life. So these next two weeks, we are going to look at these six statements that Jesus makes. Today, we're going to look at three. And Jesus sets up these six statements in a similar way. 
he starts with this. You have heard it said. And what he's saying is this is the way that the Old Testament law has been laid out. This is the way that you have been living. And then he says this, number two, but I say, and he then gives his explanation of the true intent of that teaching of the law. And lastly, the third construction of each of these six is that he applies each of these areas concretely within the context that these people were facing. Applies them to their lives and how it would work out. Jesus is trying to show he's not abolishing the law as we saw last week. He's saying that the law goes deeper than you realize. The law is not simply avoiding sinful actions, but it also means avoiding sinful attitudes. He's also saying it just doesn't mean because you abstain from certain things and certain actions, that means you've got it. He's saying your behavior shouldn't be guided simply by following commands, but by the character of God. I mean, these aren't new ideas. The prophets continually in the Old Testament harped on the hardness of the heart of the people. Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling what the prophets are talking about. But there is something new here. Jesus isn't simply repeating and saying, repent. Something else is happening. There's a bolder claim that comes with Jesus. He's saying, I'm not just giving you the truth. I'm the arbiter of truth. When he says, you have heard it said, that's great. They say, okay, this is what the Old Testament said, the prophets have said, this is what other people have said. But no, he goes further and says, but this is what I say to you. I'm sorry, but people didn't say that. No one says things like that. No prophet, no rabbi, no teacher, no sage, no holy man said things like that at that time. Jesus is saying, I am the interpreter of God's revelation. Who has the audacity to talk like that? It would be like someone coming onto the floor of Kimberly Clark, a new boss, and he gets everyone's attention on the floor. And he says, you have heard it said by corporate, work hard and the company will profit. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before, awesome. But then he turns and says to everyone, but I say to you, love your coworkers, and greater will be your reward. Who are you? Who are you to say that you speak for corporate? That you can interpret new laws, that you can put new things in place, and you can say such things as love your coworkers and there's a greater reward? What kind of company is this? You see, Jesus' teachings aren't simply platitudes on the corporate wall. They are tied to his very person. 
and they are lived out in his life. And now he is asking us to live it out the same. So let's look, shall we? At three today and three next week of these six statements of Jesus. The first one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Here Jesus is quoting the Ten Commandments. But then he starts this construction, number two. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, if you have been sitting on this hillside listening to his lecture for now on, from this point, you have been like, okay, this sounds okay. But now you've got to realize this is getting your attention. Because now he is speaking to you. There is not anyone, anyone on that hillside during the Sermon on the Mount, anyone here that's sitting with us this morning that has not gotten angry at someone. And he is saying that even that inward thing inside of you, not even giving an action, but what's going on in your heart, even that will be condemned. Okay. This is pretty harsh. And then he goes on. He says, whoever insults his brother, it's the word raka, which means calling someone empty-headed. It's an insult on someone's intellect. It's saying there's something wrong with what's between your ears. He says, someone that insults someone in that way is liable to go to the Sanhedrin, this higher court, to be judged. And he goes on. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's just upping the ante as he goes. First judgment, then the Sanhedrin, which is pretty bad. And now he says, you will go to Gehenna, which is this place of burning outside of the city. But Jesus doesn't mean just a place of burning and difficult. He's actually saying this place is separation from God. There is a place called hell. Man. What is going on here? I don't think Jesus is saying calling someone raka or a fool, which means calling someone immoral or a scoundrel or saying something's wrong with someone's heart. He's not saying that these deserve different punishments. They all deserve the same. They are showing your allegiance. Where is your heart? Where does it really stand? It's interesting, the application he uses. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. And remember, he's speaking in northern Israel in Galilee. He's 80 miles plus away from Jerusalem. Imagine someone takes their offering for atonement of sin, being able to receive forgiveness, maybe took it, all the way down there to Galilee. They've climbed the steps of the temple. They've gone through two of the different gates. They've come to the priests, and then they've realized when they've gotten there all ready to go that they 
still have this anger in their heart towards someone else. Something is not going well. Jesus says, leave your offering there, travel 80 miles back to Galilee, reconcile with that person, then you can come back and offer your offering. Wow. What is he saying? He's saying it's meaningless. It's meaningless to offer sacrifices and to weep before the altar, pleading for forgiveness when you're unwilling to forgive someone else. When you're unwilling to repent. When you're unwilling to take the steps to make it right. How can you love God when you curse the very people that are made in his image? I say, well, come on, that's ridiculous. Murder and, and anger in my heart are totally separate things. Yes, the earthly consequences of murder versus anger in our heart are different. But the attitudes both expose who you are. Anger is an attack on a person's life. It's a refusal to let them live and aims at their destruction, not their flourishing. When you whisper under your breath, you fool. Or you say to someone else, that person is worthless. Or you even say in your mind, in your heart, I wish that person was dead. You are condemning God's creation. You are condemning people made in his image. Alexander White, he was a pastor in Edinburgh. And people used to say about this pastor in Edinburgh, watch out for that white Watch out for him because you know what? People that go to his church, all those geese that go to his church, they become swans. See, white saw the best in people. He saw what flourishing in the kingdom looked like. No matter their deficiencies, no matter things in their mind, that might make them fall short in their hearts, show sin. He said they are made in the image of God and God sees them not as geese. He sees them as swans and I should see the same. But he's annoying, you say. But what she did hurt me. I'd rather curse them. I'd rather ignore them. I'd rather castigate them. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says to this. To serve our brother or sister, to please him, to allow him his due and let him live is the way of self-denial. It's the way of the cross. Greater love hath no man than this, that man lay down his life for his friends. That is the love of the crucified. See, anger unchecked can grow. Something petty can cause real problems. 
bitterness in your heart can leave you physically in serious problems. It can divide brothers and sisters. It can cause major splits. And that's what he says at the ending. He says, you should be dealing with this quickly so you don't end up getting in front of the judge or thrown into prison until you have to pay the last penny. It won't be resolved. Are there relationships that you have been hanging on to anger? But you keep on worshiping like nothing is wrong. Maybe the relationships right here at church. Maybe they're under your same roof. Maybe they're at work. Maybe God is at work in you. He goes on. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, Jesus is repeating the pattern. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He is repeating an ancient law, lex talionis, which means law retaliation. It's a good thing in the legal system to have this. It made sure that there was not a greater retribution for harm that someone did. So if someone took something from you, the retribution couldn't be you taking more from them. And that is that idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And also it means you can't do vigilante kind of stuff. It can't be taken outside the courts. It needs to be done through the legal system. So it does not spiral out of control. So one person shorts the sheets on your bed. And then you end up using their toothbrush to clean the toilet. And then the next thing you know, you're drinking pancake batter. Right? Not saying that's ever happened to me or I've done that, but maybe that's what's happened in your house. But Jesus is saying you need to not do this. There is a greater way than just retaliation and vigilante stuff. There's a greater way than just eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He says this. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. He says, do not retaliate. It doesn't mean we should throw out the legal system or justice or allow abuse. It needs to be put in every situation and wisdom needs to be applied. However, his major principle is this. The way of flourishing in the kingdom is not trying to always seek your personal justice or vengeance, but to respond to hard and difficult, sometimes unjust situations with joy and a willingness to set aside your own ego for the care of others who did you wrong. 
He gives four examples of what that looks like. One is being slapped on the cheek. It's interesting if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. What it's meaning here is that it's a backhanded slap. So right hand, boom, to right cheek. That was not just harmful for someone, but it was insulting. It was shameful. It was such a bad thing that you could actually seek damages for someone doing that to you in Israeli law and Hebrew law. He says, respond by allowing him to slap you with the left hand. It might be less painful, right? But still, it's shame. I think the application is is very clear. When our egos are hit hard, we want to respond. When we feel shame, maybe we're demoted from a job. Maybe in a family gathering, you're belittled by a family member. What is our response to that? I've got to get my justice. I've got to care for my ego. No. God says the disciple lives differently. He says, you can do this to me. And there is no shame. Because my value comes from the Lord. And I can receive this. And I can take this. And I can respond to you out of knowing that I belong to him. And belong to this kingdom that will stop this cycle of vengeance. Not just equal, but actually respond to hatred with love. Well, the problem gets worse, right? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, tunics at that time were the shirts, the undergarments, if you will, and they were valuable. And they were used for bartering, for making payments on bets or making payments on things that you owed people. And many times that was used in court to to respond to financial injustice. But the law said this, you can't take someone's cloak for longer than 24 hours. It was necessary for their warmth. So you had to allow the person to keep their cloak no matter what. But Jesus says, let them have your cloak as well. What is Jesus saying? Go around, be naked? No. I think he's saying, even if it means downgrading how expensive your attire is, how expensive your clothing is, it means buying cheaper stuff, so be it. Oh man, from shame and ego to now our possessions. How angry do we get when our things get taken? When mom and dad takes Xbox away, right? When I have to pay some debt where I'm not going to have a nice enough car or I'm going to have to be discomforted by now downscaling what I have because I have to pay back someone. Jesus is saying, even that, even you can downgrade how much you have because you are blessed in the kingdom of God. 
right? He's going back to the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He's saying even being downgraded in what you have, you are still okay. You can still give that up. It gets worse. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Persians and the Romans installed a system into um, the area where the Israel, Israel lived and the Hebrews lived. And the system was this. If a Roman guard was there and he needed help carrying stuff, if he needed help with something, you, he could take you right out the street, stop you right what you're doing, and make you carry his load. A thousand paces was the limit, which was about a mile. Jesus says, no, don't just go those thousand paces. Go two thousand paces with them. Go two miles with them. Could you imagine how insulting that system would have been if you're a Hebrew? You're going about your business. It's your time. It's your work. It's your life. You have things that you have to do. And this Roman guard comes up to you and says, do this for me. How angry would you have been? But Jesus says, even when people infringe on your rights, respond to them with joy. Children, think about parents that ask you to do things. This is my time. You're infringing on me. Would you might respond in a way that says, okay, I'll do it, mom and dad. And I'll go the extra mile. Parents, when your kids are taking more time than you want them to in your life, when they've come down the stairs for another glass of water for the fifth time, not saying we need to correct that sometimes, right? But do we need to take the extra time to sit by them in bed, to listen to what they're going through, to pray with them, to hear what's going on, Christian, your time is not your own. It's the Lord's. And then it just makes sense that the last illustration he uses, give to the one who begs from you. You do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If your pride has been knocked down, that you realize it only comes from the Lord. If your stuff has been downgraded, that you realize even the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If your time has been taken by other people, if these things have happened to you, then the natural result is when someone asks for something from you that's in need, you would say, it's not mine to begin with. I share. I give to others. Now, it doesn't mean when someone says, give me your car, you give it to them. Or someone says, give me all your money, you give to him. No, it's not saying that. It's saying someone that's in need. You got to realize that if someone was, people in that time preferred death over begging. And how shameful it was for people to ask for things. That obviously was someone in serious need. 
but you give to them. Because I do not live for myself. You know, these are great imperatives, right? Just do, 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 make it happen, make it work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, it's so much easier said than done. When people harm you and take possessions from you or hurt your ego or take time away from you, that is a burden upon your life. And there are things in your life that remind you of what that person has done where you are in your career because someone passed me over, where I am financially because a bad decision someone made or what I had to do to pay someone back, the extra work that you're having to put in or time you're having to give up that could have been leisure because you have to deal with someone else's junk and their problems. It's painful. You're carrying their burden. You're carrying their debt. Might I even say, you're carrying their sin. How can I do that? Again, back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The only way to bear the sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross of Christ in which you now share. Forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering, which is the Christian's duty to bear. When you are doing this, you share in the burdens of Christ and more fully understand the suffering that he took on. You see, that is what Christ did for us. He took our burdens. He was inconvenienced. He didn't walk one mile. He walked two miles with a cross on his back. He took those things. And when we do that for others, we are now realizing where we stand with him and what he has done for us. It's painful. It's hard. It's a continual process that many times comes back into our minds that we have to continue to forgive that we have to continue to work through it so that we can reconcile with those that are around us. Then the last one. Oh, he ends with a doozy, doesn't he? That's the way Jesus works. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Here is the one exception in these six patterns. The Bible does say that you should love your neighbor, but it does not say that you should hate your enemy. But the thing is, this has 
this teaching and outworking of love for neighbor and the corresponding that you should hate your enemy had become so institutionalized in Israel that just been, been part of their teaching. They despised those that were not Jewish. In fact, in the Qumran community, you can look at the writings that they have. They actually write down, love the brother, hate the outsider. Hating one's enemy was divinely patriotic for the Hebrew. And then take upon that the disciples who Jesus is talking to. They have faced insult after insult from those that are around them, even in their family members and those in Israel for following Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you need to respond to them with this imperative of love. It isn't some like thing that says, do it once. No, it's a present imperative, meaning it's continuous. It's habitual action. And why does he say you should love your enemy? So that, what? Normal, so that people will look and say, oh, look, he diffuses hate. Look, he does it. It it will transform my enemies to friends. Love your enemies so you will create a social revolution and people will love you in return. No, that is not what he says. Those things might happen. But he says, you do it because of what? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, love of enemy is showing that you resemble the character of God. Love of enemy is connected to the very personhood of Jesus Christ, the very thing and nature of God himself. God loves everyone. Some circles, I might get in trouble for saying God loves everyone. God does love everyone in his common grace. His sun shines on all. His rain falls on all. His, his relationals, relational capital you can have with other people, the joy that you get with creation, that is for everyone. That is God's love for everyone. Does that mean everyone is saved? No. But it does mean that God loves everyone in his common grace. And we should do the same. And he uses this statement over and over again. He says, what more are you doing than others? It could be the word extraordinary. Some have translated this Greek word into being peculiar. You are not normal. As a Christian, you do something different than other people. You don't love people simply in your own group, in your own tribe. You love people outside of your group and outside of your tribe. If you follow the ways of the kingdom, you do what is different. And then Jesus gives an illustration that would have rubbed them so wrong. Even the people you despise, tax collectors, who you won't even hear their testimony in court, they love their friends. You're just like them. To be compared to them would have just graded them. The Gentiles love their friends. You're just like them. It's so interesting that the first time that Jesus uses the word love 
on the Sermon on the Mount is when he talks about love for enemies. This is when he brings out the big guns. Not simply love for brother, you know, love for those in your own tribe. He uses love when he's talking about enemies. Oh, Christian, you think you're so special, don't you? But you are like everyone else. You love people in your own tribe. Why do I think Jesus uses the word love for enemies? Why does he use it there? Listen to me here. Please hear this. When you love people that are your enemies, you might not get a pat on the back. Actually, you probably won't. If you love your enemies, you probably won't get recognition. If you love your enemies, you won't get way to go. In fact, you might get continuous insult. You might continue to be looked at as peculiar. You see, why does Jesus use the word love when he talks about enemies? Because that is true love. Love asks for nothing in return, but seeks those who need it. Who needs our love more than those who do not have love? Where is love more glorified? It's when she dwells in the midst of our enemies. We love because we receive nothing in return. We love in that way so we can show unconditional love. If anything, I think is more dire for our nation right now. It is this command of love for enemy. We are becoming increasingly tribal in our nation. We are more bold at cursing those that are not in our tribe, calling them enemies. How much more does our community, our nation, need people that show love towards enemies? Will you love those who watch Fox News? Will you love those that wear MAGA hats? Will you love those who say, build the wall? I probably offended half of you, right? Let me go the other way, shall we? Will you love those who march in the women's march? Will you love those who march in the pride parade? Will you love those who applaud third-term abortions? Will you love them? Or will you be tribal? Or will you stay in your own group? Will you go across the street with someone that has a sign in their yard that you say, oh, they are worthless to have such a sign like that? Will you actually ring their doorbell? Will you invite them into your life? Will you care for them? 
I mean, we're not talking about Israel where you had to go 50 miles to talk to Samaritans. We're talking across the street. How dare you, Jesus? How dare you to call us to that? To call us now to be perfect? Remember, he came not to abolish the law, but fulfill it. Jesus did not retaliate against evil. He did not seek his own vengeance. He entrusted himself to the Father. He loved us while we were still enemies. He course-corrected a world that was out of control from its anger, its retaliation, and hatred, and he did it with love. He broke into this place so that a new kingdom could be established. You know, you know what this is? It's a meal. You know what it's like to share a meal with someone, to invite them into your home, to break bread with them? That shows some love. I mean, getting your house clean is hard enough, right? To invite someone that might harm you, that might make your life difficult, to fellowship with them over a meal. Isn't communion fitting? How can we have fellowship with, uh, with one another? How can we come forward and actually partake in this meal together? We are able to do it because here is one that showed love for enemies, who laid down his life. This is his life, his body, his blood shed for you so that you could be able to have fellowship with one another. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this is what's needed to break the cycle of anger and violence and hatred in our world? If so, come forward. Say, God, I need this so badly. So badly to work through the anger I have towards someone else. To work through the bitterness I have. To work through the tribal mentality I have. So there is going to be white grape juice on the outside, red wine in the middle. 